All right, it's time to hear from the Apostle Paul, and I need my children's Greek-speaking helper, which is Kaylina this week. Kaylina's going to come and help us call out the Apostle Paul into the courtyard. That's a pretty dress, Kaylina. Let's go stand over here. Thelona. Norisa. Norisa. Yep, Tan Cristo. Tan Cristo. Maranatha, my name is Paul. I'm the least of the apostles of Jesus Christ and probably the one closest to death. We live in uncertain times. Our leader, the Emperor Nero, is a crazy man who doesn't even care about the welfare of the Roman Empire he's tasked to rule. He cares only for himself. He only cares for what's best for him. He's completely self-absorbed. He cares nothing for truth. Scapegoats on Christians. Because I'm one of the most vocal of them, I don't suspect I have many days left. But as I look back across my life and see what God has done, my heart is filled with joy. How many of the children of God have been able to see the miracles that I've seen or have seen the power of God at work in the ways that I've seen, have seen the transformation of lives all across Asia and Macedonia and down into Greece? God's at work in amazing ways, and we rejoice. I think back to my time in the city of Corinth, that that year and a half that we spent there, and I remember the joy that I felt when Timothy finally arrived and told me that the the Thessalonican church was thriving. And in my humanity, I just assumed they would never stand up to that persecution. And yet when Timothy came, the joy just overfilled my soul. Because God was more powerful than any persecution, from any plan of the enemy, God was reigning. But that didn't mean that Corinth wasn't hard. During the end of my time there, I was taken before the official Gallio, trumped up charges again from the Jews. I was trying to convince the populace to ignore the rule of Rome or insult the gods and whatever other stuff. But Gallio was a smart enough man to recognize I had done nothing to break the law. And he just simply refused to hear my case. But that essentially meant I was being handed over to the Jews eventually, and it it signaled the end of my time there in Corinth. And so I headed back towards Syria, stopping on the way in the city of Ephesus. I had long wanted to visit Ephesus, but had felt checked before. But now I felt like there was an opportunity to stop there since it was sort of a way station on the way back to Syria. And I stopped there, and as was my habit, I went into the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach there and found the folks unusually receptive to what I was teaching. But I knew that I couldn't stay. I had reason to head back to Jerusalem. And and so I left Aquila and Priscilla there in Ephesus to continue the teaching while I continued on. 
It was interesting, the journey back to Jerusalem. I had promised to be there. I had vows to fulfill there. And I, I fulfilled those vows. But then as quickly as I could, the, the passion for Ephesus was on my heart. So I worked my way back to the city as quickly as I could. And when I arrived there, I found some very interesting things that happened. First of all, while I was gone, a man named Apollos had arrived in Ephesus. Now, Apollos was a gifted speaker, a young, passionate, articulate man who believed that uh, the message that John preached for repentance was true, that, that Jesus was the Messiah, and he was a strong defender of how the scriptures taught about the coming of the Messiah, but he hadn't heard anything about Pentecost yet. He didn't know that the Holy Spirit was given. He had a partial gospel, but not the full gospel. And Aquila and Priscilla had taught him all that God had provided for the followers of Christ. And so he was able to receive the gift of the Spirit. That only increased his passion for others, and he continued to evangelize in that area. By the time I got to Ephesus, Aquila and Priscilla had continued the teaching in the synagogue, and I just took up where they left off. And I continued to teach the believers there and the Jews there of the scriptures and how they related to Jesus as Messiah. And it went well for a while, but as is often the case, the Jews again became jealous, seeing that their power was waning and, and more and more people were coming to Christ. And it became clear that if we were going to continue to minister in Ephesus, which was, which was a great center for uh, moving to different directions of the region, that we would not be able to teach in the synagogue anymore. And so we moved our bases of operation over to the school of Tyrannus. Uh, and he was a believer who was willing to let us use his area and his, his uh, facility there to uh, evangelize, use that as a home base for training, if you will. And it worked very well for us. We stayed there for a considerable period of time. During that time, we had an interesting encounter with seven, excuse me, with 12 disciples of John the Baptist. It was interesting to come across these 12 who were continuing to preach the message that John preached, a message of repentance and of water baptism for the forgiveness of sins, but they had never gotten the word that John had pointed to Jesus as the Messiah. And they didn't know about anything past the message of John. And so we talked with them and we told them the full story. We talked to them about the passion of Jesus for the lost, for his suffering, his death, his resurrection. And finally, they received the full gospel of Jesus Christ. We're completely converted were filled with the Spirit, and continued to evangelize the region, moving up north and to the east and to the west, and, and telling everyone they encountered about what Jesus had done. There were some other folks that we encountered that were also very interesting. There were seven itinerant Jewish exorcists that came through town. Think of it. Seven itinerant Jewish exorcists who were trying to make a living out of scaring demons out of people. But they didn't really have any authority or power of their own, so what they would do is this. They'd go up to someone who they thought was demon-possessed, and they would say, in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches, come out! 
And sometimes it worked, which helped them make a pretty healthy living. But they came upon one guy one day, and they tried their same shtick. In the name of Jesus who Paul preaches, come out. And the demon responded, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? And the demon jumped on them and beat them. They were scared out of their minds. They ran out of the house all disheveled. But the news spread around the area. And everyone was frightened about the fact that a demon would speak back to them. And, and the people were scared crazy. The magicians in the area took notice and realized there was power in the name of Jesus. And that that power was against the witchcraft and the sorcery and the magic of that area. And the people were convicted. And they began to bring their books of magic and sorcery and witchcraft out and built a big pyre right in the city. And they burned all those books of magic and witchcraft. It was a huge pyre. In fact, the value of the books that were burned was 50,000 silver pieces, all burned because God is powerful. We saw amazing things in those days in Ephesus. Because of its proximity to Corinth, just across the sea, and because we were on the same trading routes as Corinth, the communication between Ephesus and Corinth was relatively quick. And we got lots of news from the city of Corinth while we were there stationed in Ephesus for that period of time. And we learned of the difficulties that the Corinthians were experiencing. One of our friends named Chloe had some servants, and the servants came and brought us some really, really desperate news about the things that were developing in the church in Corinth. And, and so I made a quick trip over there, but the trip did not go well at all. Um, it was almost as if their views had hardened, and they had their own opinion and didn't want to be confused by the facts. And so it was a miserable visit. I, I returned feeling defeated. And after some days of gaining perspective and hearing more of what was going on there, I, I began to write them passionately. You know how it is. When, when those you, you consider your children get caught up in error and difficulty, it just breaks your heart. You love them, and you want to hit them in the head at the same time. And that's just how I felt about the church in Corinth. I loved them, I had given my life there. I had spent so much time. And if I had a brick in my hand, I might have done something I regret, would regret later. But this was the news I got. I mean, first of all, I heard that there were divisions in the church based on leaders. Some were saying, I follow Apollos, or, or I follow Paul, or I follow Peter. That's ridiculous. We were all proclaiming the same gospel. But they all liked their own little brand of the gospel, their own little way of saying it. Or, or, and, and it was beginning to divide them as if they weren't one body in Christ. And then there were these super spiritual folks who said, well, I don't pay any attention to them. I just follow Christ. And what they really meant was, I just assumed that whatever I believed was what Christ believed, and so I just make the statement that I follow Christ and do what I want. How, how 
did they come to that? How did they think that it was okay to follow individual leaders rather than the leading of the Holy Spirit? They were, they were acting like infants, and I told them so. When I heard how they were observing the Lord's Supper, it broke my heart. The Lord's Supper was always a part of the common meal that the church celebrated together. And yet, they were so self-oriented that they would come to the church common meal with strategies of how to get the best food off the table. They would, they would think, boy, if I, you know, if I could just maybe keep this lamb off to the side, then me and my family can get what we really want to eat. And so there were people at the meal who were going hungry and others who were gorging themselves and getting drunk, all in honor of the Lord who sacrificed for them. Preposterous. They should have been, first of all, considering the needs of the least of them. Gracious, they can eat at home before they come if they're worried about getting lamb chops. But no, they would display their divisions and their selfishness for everyone to see like it was a badge of honor that they got the best on the table. It's exactly the opposite of what Christ died for. You know, when you come to the table and you permit divisions to exist in the, in the church, you forget two important things. First of all, the whole symbolism of the sacrament, sacrament is that Christ died to make us one. Not so we could all walk our own way, but so we could walk his way. And if we come refusing to understand that we're one, nurturing divisions and, and walls within the fellowship, we're forgetting that not only does the sacrament represent the body of Christ, but we are the body of Christ. We ourselves are the body of Christ. And if you eat and drink the sacrament of the Lord without discerning the body, without understanding that this represents his body, or that we are his body, you drink condemnation on your own head, proving you don't have any idea what the gospel really is. How could they live like that? I didn't understand. Their worship services were out of control. Influences from the Greek mystery religions had seeped in somehow. They were not united. And because they were not united, well, it gave rise to other things. There was immorality of a rank nature in the church. And you have to understand that immorality by its very nature causes hurt and divisions, divisions which influence people for their entire lifetime. You can't practice immorality and not hurt someone. And how do you repair that once, once you've entered into relationships that are by their very nature breaking rather than gathering together? It was so bad there were even lawsuits between the believers in the church. One believer would go to secular court against another believer. It's like hanging your dirty laundry out for all the neighbors to see. Our messages were reunited. This is how united we are. We sue each other in public court. The fact that there were lawsuits among the believers there meant they were completely 
defeated already, and they had no public witness. How could things come to this? The essence of our gospel was that Christ died that we might be forgiven of our sinfulness, forgiven of our brokenness, and he sent us his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit that lives in us is the agent of his love for one another in the church. But if we can't love one another in the church, how are we going to love the craziness that exists outside the church? Our gospel is the Spirit is here. And love for others is the mark of the Spirit in us. It's not gifts. It's not eloquence. It's not a secret wisdom of some sort. It's not any sacrifices I make. It's not any heritage or position or wealth that I have. Our responsibility is to pursue love. You know what I mean, don't you? Love, love doesn't envy. Love doesn't boast. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongdoings. Love isn't rude or impertinent or obnoxious. Love is kind and gracious and gentle. I appealed to them to renounce those, sac those shameful and sinful ways and return to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. There were some other issues I addressed with them. They had gotten confused about the message of the resurrection. They had forgotten. Can you imagine? They had forgotten how fundamental the belief in the resurrection is because that is the guarantee of our new life in Jesus Christ. And I reminded them, I felt like I had to, given how selfish they had been, that we were collecting an offering for the poor in Jerusalem and that they really ought to participate in it. They needed to do something for others in a big way. I had many interactions with the Corinthian church during those times that I was in Ephesus. And I continue, I continue to pray for them. Other difficulties in Ephesus, though, that weren't necessarily related to the Corinthian church. The spread of the gospel there had a financial impact on certain sectors of the city's business. As folks come to the living God, whose spirit does not live in any image shaped by human hands, the image makers are not particularly pleased. And, and Demetrius, a certain silversmith, saw his business tanking in town, and he was not happy about it. And so he drummed up a mob. He got some people together and uh, went after us. He managed to find two folks, Arist Aristarchus and Gaius, and dragged them to the center of town in this mob. And, and the mob was shouting the whole time, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And any time any of us tried to talk, well, we were shouted down by the mob. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when they got to the town, they yelled at the town clerk that, that these new Christians were disrupting the life of the city and the business of the city. And, and every time anyone tried to talk, actually, I wasn't there in the mob. I heard it secondhand because the brothers wouldn't let me go. They locked me at home. 
But every time we tried to speak, the shout rose. But there was a wise town clerk there that finally got the mob quieted down and said, men of Ephesus, you are in danger of rioting. And you know what happens if we're charged with rioting. The Roman soldiers will come and they will suppress this mob and there will be casualties. But men, the courts are open. The magistrates are sitting. If you have a legitimate claim against these men, take them to court and you know the magistrates will do justice. Well, that town clerk did us a great favor, Mr. Alexander, and calmed them down enough that we were able to move away from the mob and escape any further destruction. But that was one of the symbols to me again, and the, the voice of the Spirit, that it was time, time for me to move. And, and I had made a vow to the Lord that I wanted to fulfill in the temple in Jerusalem. And so we made our way back towards Jerusalem. I, I visited a number of churches to encourage them up and around and back through, and uh, eventually on my way back down through Syria, I stopped in Caesarea for just a few days. But while I was there, I ran into Philip. You remember Philip. Philip was one of the deacons. He was the man who had spoken to that eunuch on the road and, and had, had baptized the eunuch from Ethiopia. And, and Philip, Philip had daughters who were prophetesses. And while we were in worship, they stopped for a moment and, and one of them asked for my belt, which I gave them. And they took the belt and wrapped it around my hands and said, this is what will happen to the owner of the belt when he reaches Jerusalem. And I affirmed that their words were from the Spirit, and I had already had an inkling that if I made it back to Jerusalem, the uproar in the Jewish community was so large that it had to spill over into Jerusalem, and I would face very dangerous days if I returned to the temple to fulfill my vows. But I knew that I needed to go there. And I knew that the Spirit was leading me. And I knew that whatever I faced, he would be with me. And he would see me through. And he would use me to his purpose. And even if part of that purpose was for me to die, I had seen more in my life than anyone has a right to expect to see God move in the way that he had, I suspect that I probably would never see many of my friends again if I continued on Jerusalem. But I knew I must go. And I knew that by going, there would be some opportunity for me to serve him again. And I lived to serve him. I lived to please him. I lived to honor him whatever the cost. And I pray every day that my, my living, my life, will just be an act of worship to him. Unto the king, eternal, be glory and power and majesty and strength to the immortal, invisible one, to the only wise God, we worship and praise and honor. 
May you know the joy of serving him in these ways. Maranatha. Would you receive the benediction? May God himself, the God who makes everything holy and whole, put you together, spirit and soul, body and mind, and make you fit for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Go in his grace today. God bless you.